Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast. I'm Rachel Forsyth, senior reporter at Hort Week, and this week we're exploring Wembley Park with Julian Tollast, head of master planning, and David Hughes, the estate landscape manager. Thank you both for joining me. How are you? Very well, thank you. I'm a bit, I'm a bit chilled by the frost, but I'm slowly warming up. <laughs> yeah, I think I've, I've got two pairs of socks on at the moment, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> it has been a really wet, mild, and now really cold winter. What's keeping you busy in the park at the moment, David? Well, believe it or not, still doing some leaf clearing, but uh, the, the ground's too hard to work at the moment. We've got some um, landscape projects that are in process, trying to work in those before the stadium event season starts and before uh, other parties start their work around the estate. And how about you, Julian? I, I always, I always love to hear what David keeping David busy because um, you know. If, for your listeners' benefit, essentially the way it works, I, I, I sort of, I, I start the process of creating these things and it's David who has the challenging job of looking after everything. <laughs> and from my perspective, it's a, it's a privilege to sit alongside him because yeah, you try and learn the lessons from the last landscape we did. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm busy trying to create the next space, but also trying to help David look after the last one, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I imagine there are a lot of le- lessons learned along the way. And I'm, I'm really interested to dive into those and kind of how the dynamic works, I suppose, of managing a space like Wembley Park. But first I thought, because most people have probably heard of Wembley Park, but I don't know how many people will know about its green spaces and, and all of the ones that are there. So I wondered if you could kind of talk us through what visitors and residents can find there. Yeah, so I mean, if you if you say the word Wembley to anybody anywhere in the world, they'll know where you mean. Mm-hmm. It's that place in London which is famous for football, maybe for music events, but it's all about that big object in the middle, um, uh, the stadium. Um, although many, for many people, their first experience of music at Wembley was actually in the arena. Oh yeah. 
arena. So there's two big entertainment venues, the arena and the stadium. Um, but if, if you can visualize a fried egg <laughs> and you think of the stadium like the yolk in the middle of the fried egg, then Wembley Park, the part that you know, Quintain is responsible for, is the whole of the sort of the white of the egg. It's, it's everything around the stadium, mm. Eight, 85 acres in total. Um, and in amongst that, there is a whole mixture of different landscape settings. And they really have to be quite different, don't they? Because you've got a lot of different um, uses that you, you kind of need to provide for, I suppose, visitors, but also residents as well. So many people will know Olympic Way. The fans tend to call it Wembley Way. That's mm-hmm. that route from the tube station to the stadium. Um, and I suppose whilst we're talking landscape, a lot of people will know that hectare of grass inside the stadium. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you you don't get to see it unless you've bought a ticket and you certainly can't walk on it. Yeah. So you have this ceremonial route, Olympic Way, uh, which we have transformed over the last five years uh, re-landscaping it, repaving it, uh, new lighting, new banners, and a whole avenue of champion trees of the world, wow. a kind of an urban arboretum mm. taking you from Wembley Park Station down to the new Olympic steps. And it really is a, a kind of beautiful welcome. Is it quite challenging knowing how many thousands of people are going to be in that space to kind of maintain or or kind of choose what design you're going to go with knowing there could be damages things like that uh, well my role on the estate isn't so much the design part though i am involved in that but once everything is on site then it's down to the aftercare teams to um, maintain the teams the trees whilst they establish over the first couple of years and then i would take over manual watering uh, mainly through the summer months, obviously, but uh, also a couple of visits during the winter months just to make sure everything is ready for the spring. I mean, the Olympic Way piece itself, we did think very carefully about this. Um, Gross Max with the landscape yeah. architects, and we had some really valuable input from Tony Kirkham, who was at Kew Gardens at the time. And I think in, in early 2017, David and I and the team, we went down to Kew Gardens and... Tony Kirkham stood us outside the, the palm house looking down the, the vista towards the pagoda and said, oh, well, if you're doing an avenue of champion trees, you should have a pair of these and a pair of those. He didn't literally mean his trees, he meant <laughs> those species. Mm-hmm. And um, Grossmax then sort of translated that into this idea of it's almost like you take a map of the trees of the northern hemisphere, flatten it out, and the trees quintessentially associated with West Coast America are up by the tube station and those with sort of East Coast Japan are down towards the stadium end and um, the London plane tree is halfway down. But we made sure that in the specification of those trees that they are, I mean, they were kind of extra mature stock effectively, I think, you know, a, a really decent girth but also critically um, a decent clear stem height um, to try and make it harder to climb the trees if you were (laughs) celebrating your team's victory. Now, (laughs) you can't see on video, but David's smiling wryly, and I am as well, because I would say over the last 
the last two years, the, the, the Lionesses at least brought football home. So let's start with the important stuff that, you know, football did come home thanks to the Lionesses. Mm. But the previous year, for the men's Euros, um, there was a really particular set of circumstances. You know, the country was coming out of lockdown. The stadium capacity was restricted to 60,000. Mm. And England had made it to the final the first time since you know 1966 so there was a if if you if you wanted to have a test event to test the landscape we had created then that was it <laughs> and um it was a really good test uh and i'm proud to say that everything we installed stood stood the test of oh, good. <laughs> what was probably 120,000 people turning up to see that event um but yeah that that's the sort of the big ceremonial landscape for Wembley, a bit, a bit like the Mall in front of Buckingham Palace. So was there much damage afterwards? Did you have to change anything? So for, for the men's Euros in 21, uh, you know, it was a particularly exceptional set of circumstances, but you, you various estimates of sort of upwards of 120,000 people mm. outside the stadium, you know, coming, coming to, to Wembley. Um, a lot of the sort of more frenetic activity was focused on Olympic Way or Wembley Way. Um, yeah. From from quite an early time in the morning. I mean, it was an evening kickoff at eight o'clock, and colleagues said that at sort of half ten in the morning, you know, it was as busy as it might have been an hour before wow. kickoff. But the um, the only part of the landscape which took um, a bit of a beating on that occasion was one particular tree uh, halfway down Olympic Way. Um, which um, some fans managed to climb uh, and sit up in the branches. Um, but David, David's excellent stewardship of that tree has brought it back to life, and you know you wouldn't you wouldn't notice that problem now. Um, I mean, the other thing you get is you can imagine with any large crowd, you know, there is a lot of litter, there is a lot of rubbish. Yeah. But again, the estates team do an amazing job at clearing that up. You know, some, sometimes during half time, but always after the event. And it, and if you come to Wembley the day after a big event, you know it's normally spotless. Mm. I would say after the men's Euros, it probably took about a week to get rid of the crunch of broken glass underfoot. Oh my bottles. goodness! <laughs> but there's now new measures in place uh, to to control in a much more successful way uh, street drinking. And the sale of alcohol outside of licensed premises. So, yeah, the lesson the lesson's been learnt, and mm. uh, I'm pleased to say the landscape looks as beautiful as ever. Amazing. Yeah, I noticed you said harder to climb, but where there's a will, there's a way, I suppose. Yeah, it's an interesting job, isn't it, to manage that space for those hundreds of thousands of, of visitors as a stadium, but also as a home as well. And I know you guys have have worked quite hard to create those different landscapes. Yeah, so I'd say if, if you move away from Olympic Way, let's, let's kind of go to the other big sort of green space, uh, what we call Union Park. So it's it's a total of seven acres of a of a park on the on the eastern side of the site. Um, very much you know there for everybody to enjoy, but particularly designed to ensure that local residents, not just residents of buildings we've created, but anybody from the surrounding area can come and enjoy that space. And I, I suppose those are the two big scales of you know, the Avenue of Champion Trees and the Seven Acre Park. But I think it's 
then some of these smaller scale pocket parks and small squares, which are just as important for people and their pets to enjoy. Yeah, <laughs> all comers all welcome. And David, what is the maintenance of those spaces like? Are there some spaces that need to be maintained more carefully or more regularly or differently to other spaces, or is it quite standard? It's pretty standard. The, the, the planting has been designed uh, to be as maintenance-free as you can get. But uh, certainly mm. we've had some challenges in the last year with the, the extreme temperatures we suffered last summer and will probably suffer in the future. The yeah. Keeping some of the lawns green through the summer has been a bit of a challenge. So obviously you've got to put sprinklers out, but you can't be seen to be frivolous with your water usage when so many of the um, water supplies in other areas are, are putting hosepipe bands up. We're quite lucky in our area that there the have not been yeah, uh, any hosepipe bands, but that doesn't mean to say there might not be next year or the year after. And was it just the lawns that took a hit or was there, were there any plants? Uh, some of the some of the trees um, dropped leaf particularly early, uh, so there was a bit of panic about that. But uh, uh, well, un- until March, April time, we won't know whether they've all survived. I know that there is one that um, may have to be replaced in the park, but other than that, the the thousand odd trees we have on site, they've all done pretty well. Yes, yeah, so that's pretty good. What was the tree that you might have to replace? It's a um, horse chestnut. It's it's one that's been replaced already previously, and we're not sure what's going on in that that particular pocket of the park. But uh, mm. yes, that that tree is most likely going to be replaced um, before a leaf break in the spring. And that's kind of the the way of a garden, I suppose. You're you're constantly learning what does and doesn't work, constantly adapting. Um, are there any things that you found just haven't worked in the park with with so many visitors? Um, and things that have? We're getting an unusual amount of wear across some of the lawn areas, um, mm. possibly some desire lines that weren't predicted. And the construction of one of the lawn areas in Union Park is is an event area, so it's reinforced soil. That seems to have not done as well as some of the standard lawn areas. Okay. So we're obviously looking at that for, for further when we go into other areas for development, when we extend the park. And how much does biodiversity and, and wildlife play into how you're managing these spaces? I think, I think it's, um, it's an increasing theme. I mean, if, if, if we kind of go right the way back to sort of 2006, when we refurbished uh, the arena and created Arena Square outside it, it it's very much a hard landscaped uh, area with with some fantastic um, uh, Quercus plustris uh, forming the beginning of the of Wembley Park Boulevard, but essentially it's it's hard landscape with a fountain in the square, and the and the the attenuation system is is an underground tank. Um, if you flip over to the east side of the park, it's a much softer experience. The attenuation is actually in an open pond. And um, we, we tend to kind of borrow quite a lot of ideas from Repton because okay. he was the one that first worked at Wembley back in the 1790s mm. uh, for the Page family in their house. And if you sort of think of, I suppose, of 
I suppose almost if you think of the stadium a bit like the formal house on the hill, mm. as you move away from that, then the landscape tends to become more relaxed, more more biodiverse. So in the park itself, um, we've delivered three acres of Union Park and the other four acres is coming in the next couple of years. Um, that other four acres is definitely a much more uh, sort of biodiverse, much kind of richer environment. Um, some colleagues might say a bit shaggy, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, it's it's quite deliberately done that way. So maybe formal to the south, informal to the north. And David, does it influence the way that you maintain the spaces on a day-to-day basis? Yes, more formal areas do need a bit more uh, maintenance. Um, I'm, I'm quite frankly, I'm all for the, the informal shaggy look myself. Mm. Um, that's pretty much what my back garden looks like. So <laughs> to extend that to the public realms of Wembley Park. If, if there was a camera on this podcast, you'd also see that we both personally are, uh, are in favour of the informal shaggy look as well. So. <laughs> well, you have to be in this weather. You've got to wrap up warm. Yeah. But I think it is interesting. I mean, Dave, David's been brilliant over the years. We, we sometimes will have land which isn't developed for a few years. And I remember yeah. in the northern part of the park, uh, when it was then called yellow parking, on the slopes around that car park, you, know, you, you experimented with wildflower meadows. And so there's been... We've had the luxury of experimenting quite a bit. And, and sometimes I've, I've witnessed that the things which look the most informal sometimes can require just as much hard work yeah. to, to keep looking that way. And I guess we're, we're focusing a lot of this on the moment on the, uh, in this discussion about what's at ground level in, in the public realm. Mm. Um, we also have landscapes on the residence gardens, which is up to, tends to be up on a podium level. And then also up on the, the rooftops of the building as well. So uh, we definitely have areas of greater biodiversity up at rooftop level, um, you know, where there's less public access as well. But it but it it's interesting, you know, it is very visually prominent because you know, take your mind back to the the footage of an FA Cup final, and you always get that aerial footage of the stadium in its setting. Uh, so the fifth elevation of these buildings, the roof, the rooftops, is possibly more prominent at Wembley than you might uh, experience in other settings. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. And I know the landscape is helping you to kind of achieve some other goals that you have for the site, uh, which is including kind of drawing people in, increasing dwell time really making it I guess a destination yeah I mean I think um, you know the particularly over the last four years uh, we've really noticed how um, you know in early 2020 when people were sort of confined to their homes uh, due to COVID restrictions Mm. as you got that gradual easing of it you really noticed how important uh, easy access to a natural landscape was for people uh, whether they were you know, walking around the park, um, running around the stadium, you know, <laughs> any, anything which could give them access to nature on their doorstep uh, was really important. Not, not just that which we've created, but also how to get to you know, more natural settings in the surrounding area, the Brent River Park or King Edward's, King Eddie's Park or yeah. Fryant's open space. So we not only try and 
you know, help people to enjoy the landscapes we've created, but also help them to find the other landscapes in the surrounding area. So do you do any garden events? Yeah, so we, we have various things for the residents, uh, gardening club, that sort of thing, around you know, the, the grow your own allotment beds and greenhouses. Uh, we do also host uh, regular tours of the site. Okay. Uh, no- normally the last Tuesday of every month. Mm. But if you go to the, the Wembley Park website, you'll be able to find details of that. It's normally bookable through Eventbrite. Okay. Uh, and certainly, you know, if ever you're coming to Wembley, I'd always encourage you to arrive early, stay late, uh, enjoy enjoy the place, not just the event or the shopping that you've come for. Yeah, absolutely. And do those tours do all of the green spaces? Yeah, so depending on how many people are on it, uh, you know, mm. the, the public realm is all publicly accessible, but at least you can get the backstory to it. Yeah. If we can see that there's a lot of people coming on it who are particularly interested in landscape then I'll often try and rope David in to, uh, <laughs> to help me out with the really difficult questions. Um, and if it's a small group, then we can go inside some of the residence garden areas as well. But we, we tend to just sort of play it by ear on the day. Yeah. So what can we expect from the park in the coming years? So the park, Wembley Park as a whole, or Union Park, I think, you know, I would say for, for Wembley Park of the, as a whole, certainly more more of the same. Mm. You know, where where we've recognised the success of certain types of landscape, uh, you know, that's something we'll continue to deliver. Um, Union Park, that, that that remaining four acres, as I was saying earlier, you know, definitely more more biodiverse, more relaxed, less less formality to it. Mm. Um, I think I know something David's been spending a lot of time trying to to work on is. Um, beehives in the landscape do you want to say about that (laughs) Uh, well it's been a plan for mine for several years to try and get beehives onto the estate it's just finding an area which satisfies everyone's needs is it it, is it away from public interference yeah is it away from residents balconies is it easy access for the people who um would be maintaining the the bees. I've got Harrow Bee Association on my side, and we we have located an area. And touch woods, we will be getting up to eight hives on site. Amazing. Site. Um, I pretty much. I mean, I wanted it. I've, I've wanted it for a long time, but it's also become part of our biodiversity. So it, it, it's a win-win as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and what kind of the steps that you need to take before you can put them in place, I guess, around health and safety and things like that? Is that a big issue? The Bee Association will need to write up some uh, risk assessments. Okay. Because obviously bees can swarm, but mm. we've, we've uh, identified a site which touch wood again would, would hopefully allow any swarming to go away from uh, residents' balconies or residents' gardens. The, the railway lines, which give fantastic public tra- transport access to the site, uh, also form really kind of interesting wildlife corridors. So to the south of the stadium mm. where the Chilton line runs past, um, there is uh, the embankment running down to the, the railway tracks, uh, which is inaccessible to humans, um, is a site of interest of nature conservation. And it's it's in reasonably close proximity to that that we're hoping to locate these beehives. They they can't be up at roof level. They've got to be down at ground level. But as David says, we're trying to put them in a location which is not easily accessible to the sort of the 
yeah, the millions of people who visit Wembley every year. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. That sounds fantastic. The, the other thing which I think I'm sort of keen to see, in, in one of our uh, building developments, Canada Gardens, mm. uh, we provided sort of growing growing beds. Uh, I mean, allotments is probably a posh word for them, but, uh, you know, <laughs> growing beds, you know, a greenhouse, um, you know, facilities to enable residents, if they wanted to grow their own, to actually do some of that. Mm. Um and I think, uh, you know, we have this thing we call the Quintain Gardening Club, um, which is us sharing our informal tips and failed successes and failures from our <laughs> domestic settings. But trying to help residents uh, mm. get involved in that is something that we're keen to do. And have residents been quite keen to get involved in that kind of thing? Yes, yeah, so the, um, the, the plots are, they're not huge plots, they're not on a, a traditional uh, allotment scale, but mm. the what we have has been used. I'm trying to encourage people. They've got a beautiful greenhouse up on Canada Gardens. I'm trying to get people to use that more. And I'd like to see some um, tomatoes and seedlings put in there for Ooh, ready yeah. for, for putting out in the spring. That sounds fantastic. Well, thank you so much, guys, for talking me through that. It's great to hear kind of about such a diverse park, um, especially when it's got a lot of roles to play, I suppose. Um, the last question we always ask our guests is, what plant would you take to a desert island? I'm rather fond of trees for this sort of thing. So if I'm going to a desert island, can I have a hornbeam? <laughs> you can have a hornbeam. I just love the shape. It's, it's my favourite tree of the moment. I have favourite trees as I go through the years, but at the moment it's very much hornbeam. Fantastic. Julian, what about you? I, I like David, I'm going to go for a tree. Now, if you ask mm -hmm. me what my favourite tree was, I actually, I would have gone Carpinus as well, a hornbeam. So, you know, that ah. I love those. But I'm going to try and have my cake and eat it. So I'm going to go for a, some <laughs> tree which bears fruit or nuts. Ah. Um, I don't know a specific one. And I know it's not one that actually bears fruit or nuts in our avenue of champion trees. But I was always taken by the name of one of our trees. I'll forget the Latin name. But I think the English translation is a Caucasian wingnut tree. Is that right? David's nodding, so I think I got that right. Oh. <laughs> because I also th always thought that a wingnut might also sound like, you know, it's a footballer playing for a team or some kind, or is particularly good at a particular position. So yeah. if I could get edible produce off a Caucasian wingnut, I'd take that. But otherwise, I'd take <laughs> any fruit or nut-bearing tree. Maybe a quince tree. I always thought that, and yeah. then you can make because I've had quince gin before, and it's really good. That sounds good. That sounds yeah. good. We need, we need an everlasting <laughs> supply of gin to go with it, though. So true, true. I, I feel like you can make it work. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both again so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Rachel Forsyth, and this has been the Horticulture Week podcast. Make sure you never miss one. Subscribe or follow Horticulture Week podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your preferred podcast platform. If you are interested in producing a podcast with Horticulture Week, email us at hortweek at haymarket.com. Huge thank you again to Julian and David, and goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.